<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we are giving you a special double feature episode. Over the holidays, a couple of the most anticipated films of the year were released. That'd be Wonder Woman 1984 and Disney Pixar's latest animated picture, Soul. These were big budget movies that should have been blockbusters at the cinema. Alas, here we are, streaming them in the comfort and isolation of our homes. (laughs) Our first film this week is Soul, co-directed and co-written by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers. Soul takes us on an otherworldly journey as we follow Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a part-time middle school music teacher in his middle age, who finds out that his teaching job has just become permanent. This should be a moment of joy, but this isn't the life that Joe has dreamed of. He just wants to play jazz. That same day, he gets the opportunity of his life, a chance to play piano in the band of legendary jazz saxophonist Dorothea Williams, voiced by Angela Bassett. Get a suit, teach. A nice one, says the diva. Joe's head (laughs) is practically floating in the clouds when he leaves the club. Unfortunately, his body isn't. And so when he steps into an (laughs) open manhole, he falls to his demise, or at least into a super deep coma. Joe instantly finds himself riding a sort of giant cosmic conveyor belt with a bunch of other souls on their way to the great beyond. But he can't die. It's not his time. He just finally got his chance to fulfill his life's purpose. So Joe flings himself off the afterlife escalator and falls down, 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 landing in another metaphysical realm. This one, the great before, where new souls are given personalities before being sent off to Earth. This is where he meets 22, and that's Tina Fey, an unborn soul who has no interest in life. And so the story of soul begins. Soul asks the question, is it a wonderful life? (laughs) First impressions, Helen. Well, watching this movie so closely after re-watching Whiplash, I'm anticipating that this band teacher, Joe, is going to chuck a chair at some kid's head soon. Um, (laughs) But then I remember that this is Pixar, and their MO is less sadistic abuse and more pull at your heartstrings, make you ball your eyes out storylines, so I should be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Edison, how about you? My first impression is I think this is an absolutely brilliant introduction of our main character, Joe. We see him trying his best to get his band class to play this Duke Ellington song. It's just noise. (laughs) And I just had to laugh. Like, teachers are truly the most patient friggin' people. That is all I could think of this opening (laughs) scene. I remember band class. (laughs) I used to pretend to play the clarinet. Yeah, everyone's just (laughs) pretending. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but this opening scene ends with Joe playing on the piano and it's gorgeous and he like zones out, tells his story and says, that's when mm. I knew I was born to play. And I'm already in tears 90 seconds into this movie and I know I'm going <laughs> to love it already. Sinclair? First impression, I'm already crying. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know yeah. how I get with these Pixar films. <laughs> oh, yeah. They really are my kryptonite. So yeah. let's get right into storytelling. I, I just want to have to say first off that this is easily one of my favorite movies of 2020. Mm-hmm. I watched this on a cozy Sunday morning, wrapped in blankets with a coffee in my hand. And let me tell you, I ugly cried about 15 times. <laughs> this movie is wonderful. And a huge reason why is because of the storytelling and the way that mm-hmm. it tackles these themes, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I really liked about how they tackle the metaphysical environments, the afterlife and the before life, is there was nothing religious about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was all, I mean, it was spiritual, but there was no God. There was no alluding to religion. And it got me thinking about how, you know, how many kids are going to watch this movie? And that will be their interpretation of whatever is before or after mm-hmm. Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's a think little about, more universal. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like think about how many of us thought that our stuffed animals and our toys had a world when we weren't there after watching Toy Story, you know? Excuse me? Mm. How dare you? <laughs> thought? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just I had a very distinct thought when we got into that world that, you know, how many they're going there are going to be a lot of kids that like that that's what they think heaven mm-hmm. or, you know, that's what they the think a soul is. is. Yeah, yeah. And I like that. A beautiful little pastel amorphous blob. Sinclair? <laughs> Listen, I have been so close to canceling my Disney Plus membership, mm. and it just keeps reeling me back in. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could resist soul. I was watching that for sure. Yeah. One thing that I really appreciated about this particular story was that it ended up not really being about finding that one thing that you're passionate about. It Mm. had a bit of a flip in here, you know, Mm -hmm. finding your passion isn't the be all end all, you know, you can have many interests in life and Mm -hmm. you can enjoy so many small moments. And it also explored the dark side of chasing a dream as Mm -hmm. well and how you can be so focused on the end goal and the idea of success and, how maybe you aren't the person that you think you should be and you're missing out on all these little fun things that life has to offer mm-hmm. while chasing these things. Yeah. That's why I drew the comparison to It's a Wonderful Life in the mm-hmm. intro because it's very similar right. thematically, actually. There's yeah. a quote from the director, Pete Doctor, who is a two-time Oscar winner who has written and directed so many of Pixar's biggest films like mm. Up and Inside Out. Mm-hmm. But he says in an interview... Sometimes the small insignificant things are what it's really about. Almost any moment in our lives could be a transcendental moment that defines why we're here. This film is about broadening the idea of a singular focus to thinking more widely about what life has to offer and what we have to offer life. And yeah, I think that summed it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are so burdened by pressure to find our life's purpose, to live our life's purpose, to focus on what is the thing that makes us happy and Mm -hmm. this film rejects that it it begins as that and in a weird way at the start you're like oh am i feeling this like regret this sense of regret for like missing whatever that might be or not doing that but then you realize as the film goes along that's not what the message is with this yeah these are deep deep thoughts that really will resonate with adults of course and i wonder if like i wonder how that will land with kids who watch this movie 
Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting because as kids, and I mean, even as adults, but definitely when, when you're a kid, you watch a lot of movies about extraordinary people mm-hmm. and extraordinary artists and athletes and these superhuman characters. And we are constantly watching actors and actresses who have like won this genetic lottery and they're so you know beautiful and successful and you know a lot of kids can definitely from the movie sit at home and they don't know what they want to do with their life or they're feeling inferior or thinking that you have to reach a certain amount of success to be happy or even to have a life story that's worth Mm -hmm. telling and I do think it's it's great to go after your dreams, but also at the same time, it's not just a straight line. You know, life is yeah. happening around you, even when you're in this vortex of chasing success. Like, it's okay if you don't excel at everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's okay to want to do different things and try different things. So I really like the the messaging in mm-hmm. this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For kids, too. it was definitely a, a, a surprise. Like, you don't... You don't need to know necessarily right away. Yeah. And you can explore. And it can all, it's in the moments. Yeah. And like really it was saying like the purpose of life is to live. <laughs> There's a quote I wanted to read. So there is a moment where Joe does get to play in this quartet that he's been dying to play. And it's his life dream essentially. And he's deflated afterwards and says to Dorothea, you know, I thought it would feel different. This is what I wanted my entire life. Mm-hmm. And she says, I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to this older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish, that's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that's, I love that metaphor that it's all around you. You're in it. <laughs> you're yeah. just yeah. so focused on getting it that you don't even realize that you're already doing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful beautiful quote one thing i did really appreciate about this film in terms of themes was showing how artists get caught up in their flow and especially Mm -hmm. a jazz musician Mm -hmm. and i loved the scenes when joe was so completely in love with jazz and caught up in those creative moments and yeah it's it's beautiful to see somebody passionate about something and being in this kind of flow and they explored that creativity in such a spiritual way. The, f- the fact that your soul mm. temporarily leaves your body and you're yeah. existing on this other plane. I thought that was really interesting when yeah. you're fully engulfed in, in, in something, time just seems to fly by. And we've all experienced that in some way, right? Yeah, yeah and you definitely. really felt Joe's love for jazz. And I mm-hmm. do have to say that I did really love the character of Moonwind. Yeah, as this character that he, you know, he just transcended the physical world, and he was always in this state of flow, no matter what he was mm-hmm. doing. And I thought that was really beautiful. And mm-hmm. he has this really great quote, and I think a lot of artists would relate to this quote. There are some wonderful quotes in this movie. Yeah, there oh really were, like, yeah. like really, really great quotes. Moonwin yeah. says you know, lost souls are not that different from those in the zone. The zone is enjoyable, but when that joy becomes an obsession, one becomes disconnected from life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this message that it's okay to just enjoy something. Mm-hmm. I you love know? that. It's okay to just <laughs> enjoy your, your art and not necessarily be caught up in success or the financial gain of everything. 
Yeah. And I did love the young souls exploring <laughs> all these different interests. Yeah. In like the before world. And it reminded yeah. me of when I was a kid. And this happens to us when we're we're kids. Our parents do this to us. But we're bombarded by things we could be possibly interested in. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, you're forced to play a sport or an instrument or take dance classes. You know, it doesn't matter if you want to or not. Helen, honestly, you're the only person I know that stuck with piano. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I started piano <laughs> lessons and I quit. <laughs> Like That's everyone funny. is pressured to play piano, but Helen yeah. <laughs> somehow managed to stick with it. But yeah, mm. it's like your parents are doing this to you when you're young. There's always this pressure right yeah. away to be good at something. Like I remember I had to take a dance class when I was a kid mm. and I was so mad. I had to wear a sparkly leotard. I was oh so my God, embarrassed. I would die to like, see it just wasn't leotard. for me. I was like, you don't understand who I am. I just want to sit in the dark Aww. and watch Goosebumps and cut the hair <laughs> off my Barbie dolls. <laughs> God, you freak. I don't want to be in a sparkly <laughs> leotard. But yeah, there's this pressure from when you're young to find something you excel at. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is a movie that has all those universal themes. Yes. But this is also a black movie. It's Pixar's mm-hmm. first film with a black lead and black co-director and writer. All of Joe's time in New York is spent in black spaces like the barbershop, the jazz club, mm. this particular neighborhood in Queens. And they really tried to get it right. Kemp Powers, who is also the screenwriter of One Night in Miami, a film which we'll be covering in an upcoming episode, was brought into the film in the early stages of development as a writer. But as he says, that role quickly expanded. He said, quote, They really invited me in to get involved in lots of other elements of the film's development, from a lot of the casting to the character design to being a part of both the internal and external culture trusts that were organized Mm. specifically for this film. So those phrases internal and external culture trusts (laughs) that's referring to the groups of black creatives that the pixar team pulled together from their employees to give this film its cultural authenticity and specificity and also external consultants were brought in too from bradford young the amazing cinematographer who shot selma and when they see us to herbie hancock to consult with the music to Dr. Janetta Cole, who was the first female president of Spelman College, which is a historically black college. And she was also the president of the Smithsonian Institution's Natural Museum of African Art. So they were extremely conscious of the significance of this film Mm -hmm. and how it represented the black characters in it. Yeah. Even still, despite that, there have been some very real conversations and criticisms of the film for a couple of main things. The first is that Joe spends the majority of the movie as a sort of blue blob. And so Mm. it continues the problematic (laughs) examples set by The Princess and the Frog of black lead characters in animated films who spend the majority of their screen time not as black lead characters, not in their Mm. own bodies. And then the second is the character of 22 and how it's kind of centered on him as a black man basically sacrificing himself to save her and help her find her purpose. So it's a kind of retelling of that magical Negro trope at play. And Mm. it's interesting. Like, I didn't see this when I watched this film. Right, yeah. A friend of mine, Shawnee, pointed it out to me that she had read online. And... It's a type of thing that I wish I had noticed and that I didn't have to rely on one of my black friends to point out to me, you know? Mm -hmm. But 
I felt a resistance to it because I feel like we resist and try and defend something that we like love. Mm. I loved this movie. This I watched this movie and I was, this is the best movie of the year. I'm obsessed. Mm. And mm. I still think it is one of my favorite films of the year, despite criticism. You, we can talk about these things in a nuanced manner. Things can be beautiful and loved and magical and also mm-hmm. open to fair critique, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would say in sort of defense of the... 22 and Joe I mean they help each other it's not just Tim helping her like they Mm -hmm. are two lost souls that assist one another Mm -hmm. I I don't you know necessarily see that as being unbalanced or uneven personally yeah no I get that too it's true like it it is centered about Joe like seeing his purpose like he's got the most beautiful Mm -hmm. ending you know I don't know Mm -hmm. but I'm gonna live it So in keeping with their conscious effort to have black representation in this film, they really cast a primarily black cast as well to do the voices. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't we get into the performances and the the vocal performances of Sewell? Well, yeah, right off the bat, Jamie Foxx. I think Jamie Foxx is such a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. He's so underrated. He's so underrated Mm. and he just... He just always delivers. It is his his voice is amazing too. Mm-hmm. You know, it just completely makes sense. I thought he was really, really great as Joe. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, like the the little sounds that he would make. You know, in that opening scene in that opening sequence when he's talking about it, he's like ooh, ooh and he has these little <laughs> inflections when he's like playing the piano and when he zones out and he gets all kind of soft and I just mm-hmm. think it was a really dynamic fun vo- vocal performance mm-hmm. something else in the Joe performance that's not actually Jamie Foxx but the musician who did the jazz compositions for this is John Batiste and he is the band leader for Stephen Colbert's show Mm -hmm. and I actually recently just watched a segment of the Colbert show where he was talking with John Batiste who's like the coolest guy but they did actually like record his hands playing piano and then they animated Joe's hands Mm-hmm. to look like his hands and he says like the first time that he watched the film he cried at that part where he's seeing the hands because he's like my hands are so important to me and to mm-hmm. see them being portrayed in this film in that way and I have to say too wow. I, I clocked I clocked it as well as a piano player seeing these animated hands play piano and recognizing that they look like hands playing piano and right. not Rose Byrne pretending she plays piano in Insidious. Oh, yeah, it's very clear. Here we go. (laughs) That is so cool. I did not know that. I think that's so cool. Yeah, I Mm -hmm. think that's really important in films for a musician to be able to watch the film and also believe. Yeah, that's that that's real. That actor's playing that instrument or okay, the animation really represents what it is like to play the piano or the guitar. Mm. Uh, That's the fine attention to detail that like Pixar just wins at (laughs) all the time. I did really love Angela Bassett Mm -hmm. in this as Dorothea. (laughs) And I didn't realize it was Angela Bassett at first. Yeah, me either. Really? Mm -hmm. But she was a really great character. She this mm-hmm. the voice just carried the weight of a performer who's been yeah. around a while mm. has lived a life on the road playing mm-hmm. late night 
at clubs and just loving mm. music, but also knowing the reality of that life as well. There mm. is a lot of uh, weight to that voice. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For that character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have to talk about Tina Fey. So Tina Fey does the voice of 22. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought that she was fantastic, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, and this is probably not a good thing, but I, I didn't really clock the fact that she was white and that she could have not been white. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I did, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed her her voice performance. And I mean, she has this dry, like downtrodden affectation to her voice. <laughs> yeah, she has mm-hmm. that, a certain level of cynicism that works yeah. with the character of, of 22 yeah. and just kind of questioning, just questioning. And she can be like grating <laughs> and annoying in a way that mm-hmm. is kind of fundamental to that character uh, as well. Yeah. A lot of that, the criticism of that we, to go back to the previous conversation, is of Tina Fey as this character. Like, why was she cast? Right? Well, I definitely mm. think it didn't need to be Tina Fey. Like, it definitely right. could have been somebody else for sure. Mm-hmm. Totally. Tina Fey has a history of, like, you know, of controversial moments dealing with race. She was in blackface and on 30 Rock. There has been moments where she has come up in that conversation on the other side of it but in terms of like performance itself i do think that she is a really great comedic performer obviously and her and jamie fox mm-hmm. had a really natural like chemistry in terms of their banter and stuff for sure yeah well maybe let's get into some technical elements of the film as well uh helen you already touched on the score a, a little mm-hmm. bit previously, mm-hmm. but I really, really enjoyed the score to this film. Mm-hmm. It's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which I thought was I know. really, <laughs> really it. cool. Really cool. Yeah. And I How think the score fucking brilliant this, are they? I know. I know. I, it's crazy. Well, I think it's interesting because the music to this is a bit hard because you have these two different worlds. You have to incorporate Mm -hmm. the jazz world, obviously, which is such a heavy part of this film. But then there's also a lot of spirituality to this film and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of death. So they managed to have this perfect combo of music Mm -hmm. and combine the existential with the jazz element, which I thought was, was really, really interesting. And it ended up having this very haunting and contemplative sound that's very much a Trent Reznor staple right something that I adored technically about this film is how they depicted New York City oh yeah I was kind of disappointed when it goes into the like metaphysical world because I was like no I want to see more animated New York City please totally the club that he plays at in the film is called the Half Note Club and it is based off of a jazz club in Greenwich Village called Blue Note Jazz Club. And Mm. the first apartment that I had in New York City was around the corner from there. And I used to walk past it every single day when I would go to the subway. And seeing that, I was just like, like it made me cry. And it was making me cry today thinking about it. Because I was like, that, I just, I know that neighborhood. You know, that's where I used to live. Yeah. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. They did such a good job of animating New York City. I, I was really enamored by it. And Joe's apartment too. I loved, loved the detail of Joe's apartment, the old books, the Mm -hmm. records, you know, he has that piano in there that you can tell has been played Mm -hmm. for years. So warm. Yeah. It really showcased who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. The detail to his living space was really amazing. 
and the barber shop. Like yeah. it was yeah. all just so beautifully rendered. The mom's shop, like everything was very almost photorealistic in a way that isn't normally mm-hmm. the case with Pixar. Mm-hmm. It was like, these are real spaces. Like you could feel yeah. it. They were really lived in. Yeah. It, did, yeah. it was so beautiful. And the depth of the colors, like I just thought the animation in this was utterly breathtaking. Okay, so what is the last word on Soul? Soul is an entertaining, heartwarming achievement by Pixar. Not quite as good as Inside Out, in my opinion, but very close. <laughs> love that one. <laughs> last word, Edison? The last word for me is this is a film that's not without critique, and I think that that's fair, but it still is an incredibly beautiful film that I think has some really powerful messages to be delivered that I think will resonate to the parents who are watching, and there'll be stuff in here for kids too. I think it's a gorgeous film. It's one of my favorites of the year, and it's also really fun and funny too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. Soul. Sinclair? Yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with Pixar in terms of whether it'll be a good watch or not. You know, it's always a good watch. It's really great for all ages. And somehow I did manage to watch this without ending up crying in the fetal position. There was definitely (laughs) tears, (laughs) but I made it through. But (laughs) if you're going to watch Soul, be prepared for this to tug on your heartstrings. All right, Amazonian goddesses, let's time warp ourselves back to 1984 with the new Wonder Woman film directed by Patty Jenkins. Here we find leggy bombshell heroine Diana Prince, played by Gail Gadot, working at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. When (laughs) Diana isn't identifying ancient artifacts, she's also saving the world from crime at the mall and looking (laughs) flawless doing it. (laughs) <laughs> Diana soon forms a friendship with a mousy Barbara, played by Kristen Wiig, who would be so much hotter without those glasses. <laughs> <laughs> a friendship forms between the two, but sadly cannot withstand the power of an unassuming wishing stone that slowly mm. changes Barbara into an apex predator that triggers all of our memories from Tom Hooper's <laughs> <Luther's> cats. <laughs> But Barbara isn't Wonder Woman's only foe. There's also Pedro Pascal portraying Max Lord, the world's most fucked up genie and absentee father. When Max <laughs> Lord comes into possession of the mysterious wishing stone, Diana discovers that these wishes are not all what they appear and soon realizes she will have to sacrifice her reunion with soulmate Steve Trevor in order to save the world. Wonder Woman 1984 asks the question, was a Wonder Woman sequel worth the wait and the $30 rental price? Or should we have been more careful what we wished for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> First impressions, Helen. All right, a couple minutes into the film, and this is the best episode of American Ninja Warrior I've ever seen. <laughs> um... <laughs> Also, mini Diana looks like Brooklyn Prince. Does she not? Oh, totally. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I actually thought it was for a second. Yeah. Yeah, yes. me too. I was like, is it? Yeah. Edison? So my first impression is the this opening scene I am actually obsessed with. I love this. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful. It's really exciting. I love this world. I love seeing the Amazonians. I was like, okay, this is a really promising start. I was excited mm. um, for the film. Sinclair? 
First impression for me, this opening sequence is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's so full of energy and mm-hmm. power. I'm already missing the movie theater. This is awesome. Killer opening sequence. Okay, so why don't we start with what worked about Wonder Woman 1984? Edison? Okay, so one of... Uh, the thing that worked for me about <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984 is this opening sequence. I love that we both loved it. I was so on board with this. I was actually really fucking excited for this right. at this point. And it introduced a really cool theme and an idea here, right? Like there's this moment when young Diana Prince, young Wonder Woman cheats and goes down, slides down the mm-hmm. hill and like cuts off to get ahead of everybody. And then when she wins the race, Robin Wright stops her. She's anti but she stops her in advance and says, no, Diana, you cheated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is, there's going to be something like, I thought that's a kind of a cool theme. Like, how do you challenge right. a superhero when they can cheat? Cause they're a superhero. Like how much right. this is kind of cool. And then it literally never happened again in any context no. in the whole film for the rest. I was like, what? Yeah, I know. I don't know. But I loved that opening scene. Yeah, that was what worked for me. I completely <laughs> agree. This is my number one thing that worked in this film was the opening. It was so exciting. It got me very hyped up. And I thought about how cool it would be to be a little kid in yeah. the movie theater mm. watching the sequence. Yeah. It would probably feel the same way as when I watched Trinity, my bae. Kicking ass in the opening sequence of The Matrix. Same thing. Such a good opening. And I truly thought that since this was such a strong opening that it would come full circle in in some sort of profound way. And it did. But we'll get more into that. Yeah, it really didn't at all. But the, the second biggest thing that worked for me about this film was the score by Hans Zimmer. I actually, I really like the score, especially during this kind of gladiator triathlon situation I thought was really yeah. great and there is also a very specific part of the score that plays when Wonder Woman is in battle that suits yeah. the film really well it's a very distinct sound on the soundtrack I think it's called Open Road on the original score um, mm. but I, I thought that was really awesome it was very distinct and it had a really great energy to it but he's great on Zimmer okay I mean I have a couple things that worked for me there's one scene between Chris Pine and Gal Gadot that I liked which was when he's like trying on all the different 80s outfits mm-hmm. and it felt mm-hmm. like ad-libbed and like I actually felt like these were two people like communicating with each other and connecting and it made mm-hmm. me laugh and I thought it was entertaining. I liked Kristen Wiig because I just like Kristen Wiig. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm the same in terms of, of Kristen Wiig. Yeah. And in terms of when her and Gal Gadot meet for the first time, there was this interesting like sexual chemistry between them. And I was like, can this please be a lesbian romance? Like, obviously, I knew it wasn't going to be. But I felt this weird like, I'm like, oh, does Barbara have a crush on her? Like, why would you not? But like, does mm-hmm. she? <laughs> right. I think Kristen Wiig was, was playing it. that up. Mm-hmm. I think, I so think too. she yeah. was like intending it. But I also think that Gal Gadot could have strong sexual chemistry with a rock because <laughs> she's just so fucking gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. And then there was one other thing that I liked, which was Maxwell Lord's son, Lucian Prez is the actor's name. And there's that scene where Maxwell gets fired and then his son is standing behind him and he and he's crying. And I actually thought that was the best piece of acting in the whole movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> was the little boy crying seeing his dad get fired. I was like, this little actor is so great. Yeah. I mean. This poor, this poor unsupervised child. Like, right. where was his yeah, mother? Yeah, weird. Yeah, exactly. Weird. I mean, I didn't really give a shit about him at all. But <laughs> I just thought that one moment, that like five second shot, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. But I agree about Kristen Wiig. I thought that mm. she was such an interesting choice to play a villain in a superhero mm. film. I was really, really excited to see her in this. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, this movie didn't. <sighs> really go where I expected it to go in terms of of Cheetah and the character of Barbara but I don't think that's Kristen Wiig's fault but you know we'll get more into that but I also did like how Gail Gadot looked physically she just is physically convincing as Wonder Woman yeah for sure you know I didn't actually believe any of the action scenes she's in in this movie but we'll also get into that but in terms of her costuming her physical appearance I think she she is Wonder Woman she looks like yeah oh my god I will agree with that I do think that they have found Wonder Woman like Gal Gadot is it I do think that the the ways in which she wasn't able to embody the same types of qualities as in the first film were down to the script and the directions and whatever mm. in this in this right. one and not anything inherent in her. I think she is Wonder Woman for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's maybe get into what didn't work about the film. Mm. I mean, I have an entire laundry list, so... I think we all <laughs> we do. We really start anywhere. Yeah. I, w- I just want to say, like, this was on both mine and Helen's most anticipated films list and we've already discussed yeah. how you don't have the best track record for that Helen and that's fine. Oh my god, no. I this really just don't. further <laughs> furthers that. This was like my biggest disappointment <laughs> of the year. Mhm. Yeah. I was so so excited for this movie. Mm-hmm. I was so excited for it. I loved the first film. There were ways that you could critique it too, sure, but the spirit of it and the energy mm-hmm. and the optimism and the story and her I was just like blown away by it and I was so excited for this and I loved that Patty Jenkins had all the creative freedom again and I was just like well one of the things that I was excited about which is why I put it on my list and you know me I'm not a comic book person comic book movie person at all Mm. and I know Sinclair you were like what it was on your list (laughs) when you reviewed but one of the things I was excited about was the fact that it was set in the 80s and I was like and 1984, is that a George Orwellian reference? Like, who knows? Like, maybe there's something right. cool there. They fucking shat the bed with the 80s in this totally. movie. Completely. Yeah, it's yeah. so bad. Like, it's 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 a joke. When we go from the Amazonian obstacle course into 1984, the tone is so off. It's so slapsticky and stupid. I was like, who is this made for? Is this made yeah. for three-year-olds? Like, what is going on? I, I completely agree. That was one of my biggest disappointments Ugh, in this I hated film it. is the <laughs> fact that they didn't really fully utilize this being set in the 80s at all. No. This not at actually all. just looked like it was set in the present and they just put tights on people and they put some hair and scrunchies <laughs> and called it a yeah. day. I completely yeah. forgot that it was the 80s once we left the mall. It, well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I, I think that you can say, oh, well, the 80s isn't really the focus. It's more of a backdrop. But I mean, also, this movie is called Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. So you would think that it would visually be a little bit more fully fleshed out. This... And 1984 means something to people. Like, yeah. That's a meaningful title. <laughs> yes. And it didn't apply that at all. No. no. I found it to be very 
cut and paste 80s and very lazy (laughs) for sure so bad yeah definitely I think that this film is such a disappointment and one of the big reasons is I think that this film doesn't have any right to be this disappointing yeah there was a lot of things in this that were just inexcusable in terms of filmmaking just filmmaking 101 there's no reason how you can go from the first wonder woman which isn't a perfect film but it's it's a good film it's an enjoyable film there's no reason why this movie is this it should be this bad Mm -hmm. truly Mm -hmm. this to me felt like a plan d script yeah yeah or like a plan d E, C, and Q script all thrown together <laughs> to try right. and make some weird fucking Frankenstein's monster out of it. Like, it yeah. was such a disaster. What on earth story were, was it that they were even trying to tell here? Right. None of it made sense. The whole Steve narrative, I, I, like, I like Chris Pine a lot. And yeah. in that first film, him and Gal Gadot have really great chemistry and I mm-hmm. love their story. I love that the, the way that they told that particular relationship between those two characters, it was believable and it was fun and it was great. Why the fuck was he in this movie? He already sacrificed himself for her. I know. He, I know. Why does he get to be the hero of the show again yeah. by doing it again? It yeah. also just makes her so underwhelming as a character. You know, yes. Gail Gadot is not charismatic in this film. She's not magnetic in this film. She spends the majority of her time pining over Chris Pine. And it's been 70 years, girl. Yeah, but that's her character's yeah. motivation for the whole film. She's like a lovesick puppy. And it was... Seventy like, seven decades. Yeah. I'm not, it was, I understand time might be like slower if you're immortal, but like I am not believing <laughs> that. He wasn't that great. Yeah. No. It the was, D is not that great, girl. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> also, the way that he came back into her life was so strange. Like, he... he comes into the body of someone who's living and they're just not there and like he looks different to everybody else but to her he looks like him and he's like a shapeshifter like it was so nonsensical and strange but also like um now i'm questioning wonder woman's like moral compass like her ethical you're okay with body snatcher boyfriend like is, (laughs) is this okay with you superhero like what about this poor dude who would like was living his life what if he had sunday dinners with his mother who now he's like not doing that you've just like taken like what yeah where did that guy go where did he go? He he's there. He didn't go anywhere. He is there. He is that that person. Chris Pine is that. It's only Wonder Woman who sees Chris Pine. The rest of it's, the world sees other dude. It's possess. It's possessor meets Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. It's literally the um, stupidest fucking thing I have ever ever but, seen. But that's one of the. That's what I'm saying. Is like, why couldn't he just come back? Like he could just come back as himself. Why does he have to embody this other person? Like, it was so weird. Why does he have to be in this movie at all? I know. To your point, Sinclair, about Wonder Woman herself not being like charismatic and whatever, and Gal Gadot's performance not having that, I agree. And it's mm-hmm. the thing that was missing for me the most was warmth and mm-hmm. joy and charm and humor. And it also, her action scenes weren't good either. She wasn't actually believable in terms of her her battle scenes as well the action scenes looked really really terrible in this she mm. for the majority of the film almost looked like spider-man 
with her lasso. Mm. She was swinging through the air like Tobey Maguire and Spider-Man. <laughs> um, it looked awful. I didn't believe she was actually fighting anybody. And that was a huge disappointment because her as a person and a character was lacking. And then also her as a superhero mm. was lacking as well. Mm. <laughs> so the two most important things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. And also just to quickly touch on the humor element this film had none um yeah. like it tried to with the Kristen Wiig character I know that you guys both seem to kind of like that I thought it was like the most basic tropey stereotypical bullshit I have ever seen I like Kristen Wiig I didn't like this fucking character we like watching oh, Kristen okay. Wiig that is yeah. completely separate from what they yeah. did with this character I hated this what they I, <laughs> what yeah. they did with this I cannot believe they pulled a she's all that with Kristen yeah, Wiig, so the attractive lame. woman in glasses, and she's hot when she takes the glasses off. I cannot what, believe she they oh, did suddenly. That. What, what was her superpower? She yeah. could wear, walk in heels suddenly. Congratulations! So can yeah. I? Like what? Uh, yeah. Well, but also her, the way that people treated her pre Cheetah was so bafflingly bad. Like nobody would treat someone like that so consistently. Like. Exactly. Not everybody would ignore her and pretend like, like, sorry, no, that's not accurate. Mm-hmm. People don't treat people that way. Like, it just felt like such a, again, like that's, it was in the beginning where it felt so slapsticky. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. Ham-fisted stereotypical drinker. And yeah. it's this idea that to be cool and sexy and to get attention from men, you have to look good in heels and you have to wear a right. tight dress and be tan and have highlighted hair and you can't yeah. be quirky and smart, you know? It's this idea you have to be a goddess like Gail Gadot. Like this movie spent a lot of time showing us what is attractive and what is not. Mm. And I wanted Cheetah to be a badass villain. And she ended up just Mm -hmm. being tropes and stereotypes. And I just felt like this movie just kept throwing at us how hot Gail Gadot is, which she of Mm. course is. It doesn't need that extra attention. You know, in the mm. first Wonder Woman, she's gorgeous. Obviously, she's a goddess, but there's a relatability to her. There is a warmth mm-hmm. to her and there's something mm-hmm. empowering about her. And this one was just showing her as this physical perfection and mm-hmm. this constant object of male desire. And then right. also, you know, you we have a, a the possibility of a great female villain and all it becomes is this female jealousy instead mm-hmm. of showing that there's depth to women it's we're not just jealous of each other we're not just jealous of each other for being beautiful yeah. or being this or or that there's oh, there's so more lame. to the, if... the female rivalry than that there's it's deeper than that mm-hmm. yeah you know? it feels like such a step back in terms yeah. of female stories yeah i mean yeah the villains in this movie fucking sucked pedro Bas- pascal oh, oh was awful i hated hated him in this movie I know. and not not hated because he was a hateable villain i fucking hated the character it was horrible I know. it was so it, flat and yeah. yet also simultaneously such a cartoon oh i know oh i hated it and that's <laughs> something that makes like can make these movies so strong is yes. having these complex v- villains with life and he was so smarmy and just I just and I did just didn't want to see him like uh, well there was just there was nothing realistic <laughs> about him at all you know his relationship <sighs> with his son was forced it wasn't believable yeah. so that end 
you know, so when he's running to his son, completely unearned. You don't oh give a God. shit about him or his son or their relationship. Zero like, shit. And at, the, and at the very end, we get like a 30 second montage of like why he is the way he is. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Why are you giving this to me now? Also, I don't care. Gil Gadot's <laughs> last battle scene with him isn't even a, a real action scene. Right. It's an action monologue. And then, you know, her, her action scene with cheetah is completely overshadowed by the fact that Kristen wing looks like a jellical cat <laughs> i wanted so much more of that <laughs> listeners if you have found any sort of like mashup on the internet of cats music to cheetah footage <laughs> i really want to see it i like am scouring the internet i haven't found anything yet but somebody has to make that well, I also just don't understand the Dreamstone either. It's like anyone. The Dreamstone is on so it, fucking stupid. But you could take back your wish as well. Just take back your it's wish. Like you could you return can... it at any moment. Yeah. But also, like, let me just also point out, like, what about all of the good wishes that were also happened? We're just assuming that everybody only made <laughs> yeah, bad <no>. wishes. So <laughs> right. what about all the good wishes that had to be taken back? And yet, also, when the when the wishes were taken back, it still seems like at the end of the movie. Everyone is still aware of what the fuck happened. Those walls in Egypt like crumbled, but everyone is still like, yeah, it's there. There's garbage everywhere. People still know what happened. They're aware of their wishes. They're aware of taking their wishes back. So this took place in 1984. So let's <laughs> yeah. talk about the continuity issue of telling any single story after <laughs> the Great Wish debacle of 1984, <laughs> now yeah. in the DC Universe. How yeah. are you not going to address that again? Are you serious? <laughs> This is the stupidest movie of the year. It's so fucking stupid. This whole concept of the stupid dreamstone and the fact that he has to touch people and then, oh, these satellites just shoot particles. Oh, it means I can physically touch every person on Earth. Give me a fucking break. Are you fucking kidding me? Who wrote that? Who approved that? Like, that is such garbage. Yeah. Yeah. I, and there's also the Hallmark Christmas movie ending. I know that was which so was, weird. Is wow. essentially a, such a jo- meet Joe Black moment at the end. You know, she sees that man yeah. at the end. You know, even though his his body had been taken <laughs> over, and then she sees the real him, and then they kind of give each other this smile, like, yeah, maybe we'll date now. Yeah, but in <laughs> reality, if we're to ex- if we were like actually thinking that this happened, for example, right. Suddenly, dude wakes up and it's what three weeks later. You imagine just coming to in your bed and you've lost three weeks of your life. You're not out in your like nice coat and scarf in a Christmas square looking at Wonder Woman. You're at your therapist being like, What the fuck happened in my life? (laughs) This is what I'm saying though. Like, these are the biggest movies in the world with the biggest budgets. You can't write a, a concise script. Give me a break. Well, that's why I said my biggest problem with this film is that there's no excuse for it to be this bad. This film has mm-hmm. no exactly. right to be this bad. Truly. It really doesn't. Okay, let's wrap it up. Um, okay. What's the last word on <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984? Well, I'm not a huge fan of comic book movies, and this hasn't helped to sway my opinion at all. Uh, skip this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edison. For me, this is like the, my biggest disappointment of the year for film so far. I was so excited for this. I will 100% see what the next one is. They've already announced yeah. Wonder Woman 3. I will go in with an open mind and hope that they have, you know, listened to all of the very loud critique and tried to do something better. <laughs> because I really do think that Gal Gadot is perfect for this character. Yeah. But we need the content to 
to match. And yeah, this did not do it. Also, just skip. Sinclair? Last word for me. The cold hard truth is that this movie is a disaster and no amount of wishes can give me back the two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that. And $30 I spent Oh on my it. God, Sinclair. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie To Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And please become a Patreon member. Patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Bye-bye. Ugh. <laughs>